Welcome to today's episode of the L&T Chat Show. If you enjoy this or any of the other episodes, please review, like and share. And if you'd like to participate in the show, then please use the contact email address in the episode description. For now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the L&T Chat Show. And today my guest is Alison Torn. Alison, would you like to tell the audience something about yourself? Yeah, my name is Dr. Alison Torn. I'm Associate Professor for Learning and Teaching at Leeds Trinity University. So I've worked at Leeds Trinity University for 15 years, um, coming straight from my PhD in psychology. So I teach um, on the undergrad and master's psychology students, um, but I also lead the university in teaching and learning initiatives as well. Oh, OK. Uh, so that's across the university, multidisciplinary. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Is, is that done with a, an academic development team or is that? It is. Yeah, we have an academic development team called the Centre for Excellence in Learning and Teaching, otherwise known as CELT. And I work within that team in my main areas um, within that team are leading the university on digital pedagogy and also all things AI at the moment. All oh, right. Well, that's always <laughs> going to be interesting. Uh, I'm 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 somebody who rolls along with the whole AI thing, and I, I am trying yeah. to use it more. And and I'm trying to encourage the students to to see the the ways in which they can use it absolutely uh, for themselves. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about uh, jigsaw classrooms. Although obviously, if we digress at all, uh, that's perfectly okay. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about? When you first encountered this idea or how it first came to your attention? So I teach social psychology and um, some of the social psychology um, scholars that I draw on, one of them is Elliot Aronson. So I read a lot of his um, work. His books are really good for undergraduates. They're kind of very easy to access. And Elliot Aronson actually came up with the idea of the jigsaw classroom. So I'd known about it for many years um, and it really came from his observations about what happened in America in the early 1970s. So and this was in Austin, Texas, I believe. Um, So the city schools had been desegregated and because Austin, like a lot of areas of the United States um, of America, um, had a long history of racial segregation, um, all of a sudden they kind of young people found themselves in classrooms. So um, white Americans, Hispanic, for example. And what he observed was there was a lot of fear and distrust happening within the classroom and that really broke down into um, physical and verbal aggression um, and increased prejudice within the classroom as well. The attainment rates of the Hispanic students were far, far lower than the white students. So he wanted to look at a way in which he could reduce the competition within the classroom. That's what he felt was going on. And it builds on a long kind of history of how groups can kind of be defined and set against each other when they kind of come into conflict or competition. It's based upon Sheriff's work around realistic conflict theory and also taps into Tatchfell's work as well around social identity theory. So he wanted to eliminate the competition within the classroom. He felt if he could do that or reduce the feeling of competition within the classroom between the two groups of 
um, children, then prejudice would potentially reduce, behaviours would improve. So he had this idea of the jigsaw classroom, which was around having a topic area. So the kids would kind of self-form into groups and they would have a topic area, but each member of that group would be assigned a different angle to take within that topic area. So a different area to research, for example. And then what they did was they formed expert groups. So say, for example, I think the example on um, Aronson's website is around um, World War II. Say, for example, um, you know, one student um, had to research, you know, how, you know, the beginnings of World War II, another student kind of, you know, had to um, research the impact of the Holocaust. They would then go into their expert groups with other children who had that same topic area and they would research it together as an expert group. They would gather all of their evidence so they'd all be working on the same topic area. And then they would go back to their original group and share it with the group. Does okay. that make sense? It, it, it does. It kind yes. of does. <laughs> um, no, no, no. It absolutely does. I'm, I'm, I am wondering, I mean, obviously, there's a context if it originally started in the 1970s. Mm. And you're talking about, you know, the Second World War effectively still having uh, a very significant cultural mm. impact um, at that time. Mm-hmm. Does, does this, is the subject that's used is that important is it something which okay so it doesn't need to be something necessarily that that would be particularly relatable to that group no i mean obviously you know you use it in relation to whatever kind of topic or theme you're kind of teaching around at that particular you know in in the particular session so you can use it for anything i have a colleague who's used it for example around um developing a research grant so a hypothetical research grant and he gives each student kind of a section of it and they go off into their expert groups to kind of research that and then they come back to their original groups and i think one of the beauties of it is is that you presenting kind of the evidence from your expert group to members of your original group who and this is new new information for them but collectively they're they're kind of building the 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 story or the background or whatever you want them to research together so they're they're in sorry i'm 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 just like to get the practicalities correct in my head so Mm. they form into groups and each person in that group is given a task yes or, or an aspect Mm-hmm. They then redivide into groups which are essentially made up of everybody who has the same aspect. Exactly. Will they have done any individual research before? No, they, they do it collectively. Uh, okay. so, so they do it collectively. Yeah. And is there an ideal way of them doing this? So, for example, I'm thinking about my own classrooms and not mm. everybody necessarily comes with a laptop. Um, mm-hmm. So would would they... Would it be irrespective of, you know, whatever um, machinery or platform they have to help them that they, they would? Are they expected to kind of divide up how they're going to look at the aspect before they do it? Or is that something that's completely left up to the group to work out? How that's something that can be left up to the group to work out. And obviously you are there as a guide on the side to kind of facilitate that. 
Um, but, you know, that's really left up to the group to kind of work out themselves. Sometimes, you know, you can kind of give roles within the group in terms of, you know, within that expert group. OK, one of you kind of needs to perhaps look at, you know, the research online. One of you needs to, you know, look at kind of blogs. One of you needs to look at some websites, you know. So you may kind of give some starting points or jumping off points for them. Right. Um, but usually you leave them to do it by themselves. Oh, OK. And, and are they given a, an instruction as to how to then put that information together? Because presumably as each person provides some information, are each of them then taking a note of what everybody within the group has said? Exactly. Yeah, because they have to then go back and explain their aspect or kind of discuss the research around their aspect to their original group. And is is there any uh, either before, during or after point at which you're asking them to think about how reliable the source is in terms of the information? Oh, about? yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it would be all of that would be kind of front loaded within the module in terms of looking at kind of reliability of sources, um, the checking of those. And, you know, we talked very briefly about AI before this podcast or at the beginning of this podcast. So AI is kind of factored into that as well. Um, so looking at kind of, you know, the validity of what, you know, if they're using AI, how that is produced, the validity of those sources, how you may fact check that as well. Um, so, yeah, we would encourage them to use a variety of resources in order to kind of research particular topics. And then once they go back to their groups, clearly each of them is then reporting on the yeah. expert group. Yeah. Um, so let's say you've got I, I imagine this works well if you've got four or five members in each. Group. Yeah, I've done it with them. I think the minimum that I've done it with is three. Um, and. Once they've all reported back, clearly then they've got a, a much broader understanding of. Yes. Let, let's just say if it was the original one, the Second World War, that I'm, I'm interested to know what uh, specific topics within social psychology maybe that you've applied this to. But what what do they then do? Or is this just about helping them to break down? It's about helping them to kind of break it down. I mean, you can use it. So I do have a colleague who's used it, for example, to. um as a starting point for their group assessments. Right. Um, so you can kind of just use it in, in class, which is the way that I've done it to kind of, you know, just um, feedback on particular kind of discussion areas. Um, you can use it as a jumping off point for assessments as well. So there's a variety of ways you can use it to, you know, so for example, in research methods, um, one way that we use it is to actually develop research questions. Right. OK. Um, yeah. And, and within within your own teaching, what, mm -hmm. is there something in particular that you found works really well, either in terms of topic or how you organise it or what the final output is? I mean, does it work best if it's with an assessment or? I've only used it within class. Right. And I teach very large modules. So I teach up to mm, 150, 200 students in a class. Yeah. And I have always wanted to try jigsaw classrooms, but I never have small enough classes really in order to kind of, um, in, in order to kind of test it out. But this year I did. I kind of just went with it with this very large cohort. So a full auditorium of um, second year psychology students 
And we had a session around group decision making. And I wanted them to look at how groupthink was applied to a particular scenario. Um, so what I did was I actually got students to organize themselves into groups. Yeah. So I got them where they were sat in the in the auditorium. I got themselves just to kind of organize themselves into groups of three. I got themselves to allocate each one of themselves a number. So they were either number one, number two, number three. And then I put up the instructions for the number ones, the instructions for number twos, the instructions for number threes. And then I got them to physically move around the auditorium. So right. <laughs> it wow. was it, it was kind of it was a bit of a risk because I thought, how is this going to play out? But, you know, I was kind of, OK, we're just going to go with it. Let's just see how it goes. Um, it's always risky moving students around because they kind of get out of their comfort zone. And particularly, yeah. I think if it's a large flat space with tables, they don't mind so much because they know that that kind of, you know, when they walk into that kind of physical space, they think, OK, I'm going to be doing group work. I'm going to be talking to people, um, you know, so this is how it goes. When they're in a big auditorium and it's tiered, they're not expecting that. Yeah. You know, what they expect when they enter into that space is um, I'm going to sit here and listen to you down there at the lectern to deliver whatever you want to deliver. That's the kind of the expectations of what happens within that kind of lecture theatre space. I have been doing kind of flipped classrooms within lecture spaces for a number of years now. Yeah. So whilst I may have, for example, um, an hour and a half or a two hour teaching slot in that space, I very rarely talk or kind of deliver content for more than half an hour. Yeah. 20 minutes, half an hour. And then the other hour is structured work, group work and activities and bringing it back to the class discussion. And, you know, it's a challenge to facilitate um, within, you know, with such large groups, but they go with it. They really enjoy it. Yeah. And they work hard on it. But they're always working with their friends. So they're yes. always working with the people who are sat immediately um, next to them. So trying out a jigsaw classroom with that large group was I did feel it was kind of fairly risky, but actually they they did it. They moved around. So I had, OK, group ones are sitting on the left hand side of the lecture theatre. Group twos are in the middle. Group threes are over here. And they worked through the questions that they had for their expert groups and then they returned to their original groups to kind of feed back to each other. Presumably, though, I mean, if you're talking about a, a huge lecture theatre, mm. and I'm, I'm picturing this in my mind because mm. uh, in, in particular, I've got a, a final year marketing uh, lecture that I have to deliver and it's a two hour lecture. And I'm always looking for ways to try and make it more interactive and mm. engaging. But I'm conscious of very much the same things that you're thinking about, that, you know, large groups in, in a very formal space, it, it can be a more difficult thing to do. So you've got a whole load of ones on one side, but presumably mm. they have to then effectively split themselves into smaller groups, maybe fours or fives, because otherwise you've got like, like 30, 40 people yeah. trying to talk to one another. Um, does, does that happen reasonably OK? Because, again, I, I'm concerned about the individual who might not necessarily know other people particularly well or is a direct entry student or has anxiety. Mm. Do, do you do you have to intervene at all? I didn't intervene. 
Um, I mean, I kind of this year group were new to me this year. The second year, so I hadn't taught them before. And I had spent kind of the first I think I introduced this in week three. Um, I'd spent the first kind of couple of weeks and actually I should just say that I taught them probably for about 60 percent of their teaching this semester because they also had me for research methods as well as social psychology. So they saw a lot of me. Right. But the very first session that I have when I kind of teach new students is we, we talk a lot about creating a safe space. We talk a lot about um, inclusivity, how to have an inclusive space as well. I'm very I say to them, you, you're adults in this space. You know, if you want to leave at any point, you can do. You don't have to give a reason. Um I don't want to kind of feel make students feel um, any kind of sense of shame for kind of leaving within the middle of yeah. the session. You know, there may be very good reasons as, as to why they may want to do that. Um, and it's all about kind of kindness and respect within that space. So and part of that is that, you know, if you do feel uncomfortable with anything that, you know, I ask you to do, I'm never going to ask you to kind of speak up if you don't want to speak up. You know, I will never kind of pick on students to talk. Um if you do feel uncomfortable, then, you know, you are very welcome to kind of come talk with me and, you know, we can make adjustments. And, and in that big space, when mm. I, I'm assuming once, because presumably they move back to their original yeah. groups. Yeah. So they're, they're then sharing in their groups the, the mm. various different uh, angles or aspects that they've been doing. Mm-hmm. Is it then a case of, of asking them to volunteer to contribute? something or uh, do you put up a discussion question or do you ask groups to talk to the group next to them or how does how does that work in terms of the next stage of of managing um, such a big group so they have like so I gave them discussion questions okay that they needed to kind of focus on so they had a short video to watch and they had some kind of very focused discussion questions that I wanted them to to focus on so group one's questions were different from groups two that were different from group three so they came back to their original groups and shared what their expert group had observed yeah and then what we did was actually we came back and we, we people shared that within the whole group. So I gave them probably about kind of, you know, 10 minutes to kind of share their kind of collective findings together. And then it was like, OK, let's talk about this as a whole group. What did you kind of observe? What did the different groups observe? So then people would just kind of volunteer um, around those kind of different discussion points. OK. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. And in, in when they're contributing, mm. is is your role then to encourage other groups to mm-hmm. go on from that? Or do you yeah, sort of provide yeah, them absolutely. with some feedback? Um, both, both feedback and kind of, you know, facilitating other groups to kind of develop and looking at what more, can, you know, can be added to that. So as we kind of talk about it and then kind of bringing it back to the theoretical aspects that kind of are underpinning that particular session. So. In, in that circumstance, you've used it, and I can see the benefits of, of doing that in a in, in a big space because it's it, one it, it gives the students time to think and talk when in yeah. a, a sort of standard lecture they 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 maybe don't have that opportunity. It's it's also I, I quite like the idea of getting students to stand up and move about because I think a bit of physical activity Absolutely. Uh, can, can be very useful yeah. um, for a number of reasons. 
But in terms of its original intention, which was mm. to make uh, students kind of less fearful of each other, especially mm. if they've then got to go on and do any kind of group work, it, it, in particular, if it's assessed, um, because I've, I've had a, a, a lifetime of teaching students, particularly with regards to group assessments and having to constantly deal with mm. uh, issues and try and find ways to address them and use the myriad of those different things. But th there's always mm. uh, stuff going on. So in, in your experience, is there a change, do you think, in the environment? Does it feel like the students are kind of relaxing a bit more, having been made to, to intermingle beyond yeah. their uh, friendship groups? Absolutely, it does. And I think it really kind of... Um, the, the, yeah, they're not cliques, they are friendship groups. It really does help to kind of um, bring some students out of themselves in terms of talking to others that they may never have talked to before. And it's one of the things that I saw when we kind of talked during the pandemic. <laughs> um, you know, when I was teaching kind of 150, 200 students kind of on Teams mm. in the pandemic, and this was before Teams kind of could do breakout groups, I used to basically kind of create my own little breakout groups and channels and things like that and um, students used to join them and I used to you know and when, when breakout groups did come I'm probably going a bit off on a tangent here but no, anyway it would randomly allocate students yeah you know so I try to again you know if I had like a, a two-hour session that I was doing online students don't want to listen to me kind of just talking to them online for two hours you know I can do a half hour, which is what I do do. I do a half hour pre-record. This is what you need to watch before you come into the session. And then this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Right. Um, so I did a piece of research around um, students and staff's experiences of online teaching and learning during that kind of pandemic 2020, 2021 year. And what the students said was actually we've really what we've really enjoyed is meeting new people meeting people that I would never have spoken to before. Um, new friendships had forged as yeah. well during those spaces. They connected with people and they said, we really enjoyed that. They said, if we'd had been on campus, we would have sat with our group of friends. We would have sat in the same seats and we wouldn't have kind of known anybody probably beyond, you know, a small circle of about 10 or 15 people at the most. Yeah. Whereas they were connecting with people beyond their immediate friendship groups and they really appreciated that. Do you think this works better, though, with, uh, say, first and second years as opposed to final years or does it does it not matter? Um, I know my colleague has used it in his final year module um, and it's worked very well for him. I think there are certainly benefits from doing it in first year you know, in terms of getting students to talk to other um, students. And one of the things that we do within the university is we have a, a, a big kind of two-week block, which we call professional challenge, where we get all of the first-year students across the university. So we're probably talking about maybe seven or 800 students. We get them in for two weeks and we put them into interdisciplinary groups of maybe five or six and so they may be there may be a psychology student there may be a primary education student there may be you know a journalism student a media student whatever and they work on what we call a professional challenge an employer challenge 
And so we get employers to come in as well and they work with them and they they work on a challenge that is set by an employer within those interdisciplinary groups. And they have two weeks to kind of um, meet that challenge, you know, formulate a report around it and, you know, and present as well. And the first year students are very kind of apprehensive before they go into that. And the end of it, they have absolutely loved it. They've right. loved kind of working outside of their discipline area. So I guess that's a jigsaw classroom on a much, well, it's not quite jigsaw, but it's a much bigger scale. Yeah. No, I, I love the idea of, of doing something interdisciplinary and, in fact, have, have been involved with and, and been an advocate for um, getting students within different faculties to work together with one mm. another. So uh, we had business students um, who were working with uh, digital media students because the business students were looking at, well, they were advertising students, but they were looking at it from uh, the point of view of generating a, an idea and then the the digital mm. students were effectively realizing that in digital form so the the students were working together and it was interesting seeing how they uh interacted because of the the kind of different approaches that they were yeah. uh, within those faculties i'm also a big fan of you know, I mean, we have observations, I'm sure most, mm. if not all the universities have observations, and but they tend to be within the same teaching team, which is which is great in one respect, because, you know, you might be familiar with the, the subject material. But certainly when I was teaching on uh, uh, PGCAP, which I've been doing now for eight, nine, maybe 10 years, one of the great things is I get to go and observe people who work in completely different faculties mm. to me. And often that's where the interesting ideas, because it's a different uh, discipline and therefore has different parameters and, and and aspects to it so somebody will be doing something there that i may never have thought of but actually is still uh transferable um, yeah i i'm exactly the same i've done all of my observations outside of psychology right. for the most part i've maybe done a couple but you know in journalism in history um so whoever will have me i will go and observe because like you say there is so much that you can learn and they come into mine as well so we kind of yeah um and on the back of one of those what we did was um i oversaw a project where similar to you we kind of joined up some final year history students with um film and media students Right. On a so on a joint project. So they both had their separate modules and they both had kind of separate module outcomes and separate assessments. But actually what they were doing, they were working on a joint project. Yeah. So for the history, it was around kind of collating kind of, you know, local history and producing a, a written report around that. But what they did was they worked with the media students who then produced kind of um, a 10 minute like magazine television program. And they did it around kind of um, Leeds Museum and the Egyptian artifacts in that. So well, the history sounds, kind of. Yeah, that sounds cool. Students um, and kind of and got, again, I think it's really useful for, for uh, students maybe to see that, you know, the chances are that their careers and, and their life will go beyond the, the sort of narrowness of mm. uh, a particular discipline because, you, you know, you work with people from all different kinds of, mm. of, of backgrounds and experiences. And, and that's as much a, a learning environment as, as anything else. Um, I want to take you back, if I may, mm. uh, to the, the large uh, teaching group, mm. uh, because this is something which which does cause me some degree of stress, not because I particularly mind teaching to large groups. Um, I, I have a performance background anyway. So um, the, the theatricality of, of 
creating a, an yeah. atmosphere in, it, in yeah. a room is, is absolutely fine. The stress mm. comes from that thing of, uh, you know, I love using uh, interactivity in games and different things, which you can, it's much easier to do in a, in a smaller uh, mm. teaching environment. So in the large room, you, you've obviously already explained how you've used the version of the, the jigsaw teaching mm. process. Um, are there other techniques that, that you're using? You mentioned flipped classrooms and again, big fan. Um, mm. been doing that for a considerable amount of time where mm. I'm allowed to. Um, are there other things that you've used to, that you think are helpful when it comes to teaching big groups like that? Mm. Sorry, I'm one putting of, you on the spot. No, 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 it's fine. One of the um, one of the things that I've rolled out at Leeds Trinity, and this is across the university, is a scaffolded approach around our live teaching. So this kind of came from the back of the pandemic. So everywhere in the university now, we kind of work on this pre-life post model. So our live on-campus teaching is bookended with some kind of pre-activities, which students kind of need to do before they come into the classroom, and then some kind of post-activities in terms of kind of consolidation and checking their understanding. Now, for me, my pre-activities are always anchored around, like I said, you know, what I don't need to deliver in the class. So I've taken a lot of maybe what I when I first started lecturing where I might deliver an hour and a half lecture, I've taken most of that out and that they can do, you know, in the comfort of their bedrooms. They can watch, you know, maybe a 15 or 20 minute video of me and read maybe a three, a three or four page article. So nothing too onerous, yeah. but something that sets them up for coming into the classroom. And then when they come in, I will do maybe a 20 minute extension mini lecture, micro lecture, I call it. And then it's about kind of the group work. And that really kind of varies from week to week in terms of what I'm asking them to do. So, you know, whether it is kind of, you know, watching videos and applying things, whether it's doing some kind of in-class testing and looking at the results of that um, within their group. So we use, for example, the when I teach around individual prejudice, we do the Harvard implicit association test in class and they look at their results and discuss those. And then we look at kind of the, you know, the the ethics of that particular test and, you know, how robust and the validity of it and all of that stuff. So it's a range of a range of different things I do kind of when I'm doing that interactive bit. Right. And. I mean, I, I would have a, a concern. I think I've expressed this before in a, mm. in a previous podcast that from my experience, e even right down to the, the seminar groups where it's much harder for people to hide, the students often and sometimes for good reasons, but often seem to not engage with mm. prior reading or, uh, you know, watching if, it, if it's a video. Is there a way that you have that encourages them or is it just the consistency of knowing that they've got to do it every week? I think, OK, so I, I need to be absolutely kind of straight up honest with you. So a lot of them will not do that. You right. know, when I look, I take some time probably around the middle of the module or maybe kind of week four to look at the engagement with things so I can download all the engagement data from Panopto, from Moodle, from, um, you know, we use GISC Learner Analytics as well to, kind of, to actually have a look at what the cohort engagement is. So I say around about maybe 40% of them engage. 
And those 40 percent are probably the 40 percent that are kind of turning up regularly to class as well. So I can yeah. have a look at that. So I think engagement is always a really, really difficult thing. I did do a big evaluation piece for the university about kind of, you know, the engagement with pre-activities for students. Um, and when we looked through kind of all of the module data and the open comments around it, and I looked through around 10,000 open comments about this, students like it when it's manageable. So it's yeah. got to be manageable. You know, there's no point in giving them a, even like maybe a 20 page article. They're just not going to read it. And I think there are particular pressures on students at the moment as well. They're very aware of. So a lot of students are, for example, juggling part-time or full-time work a lot of our students have caring responsibilities we have a large number of mature students as well so they're kind of juggling different demands so whatever I give them to do before they come into class has to be manageable so I say it takes no longer than an hour right of their time it's got to be bite-sized it's got to be chunked yeah I use Moodle lessons so I scaffold and structure those kind of what I want them to do. So they kind of click through it as a lesson. It gives them feedback on their progress. It tells them when they've completed it, tells right. me when they've completed it. So there are ways in which you can kind of set it up, which really encourage engagement. And, you know, the feedback that I've had is students like that. What they don't like is if it's unmanageable if it's very passive. So they like things to be active. It's not just about, yeah. OK, watch this. It's about, OK, I need you to watch this, but then I need you to think about that and bring this into class, bring those thoughts into class, because we're going to be talking about that. So they want it to be built upon. They don't want it to be repeated in class. So otherwise, why would they do it? Yeah. Um, so there's kind of. Yeah. And we're still kind of working our way around that, about how to generate the best engagement with those things, because, you know, it's tricky. It's tricky. Okay. Um, I, I hope you forgive me asking asking this one. Uh, it's just that you know, while while somebody is available, and we do have a little bit of time. Mm. Uh, so, from your experience of of doing the teaching, whether it's in the you know a big classroom doing what what is normally a, a lecture, or whether in a smaller classroom doing a seminar, is there a, a particular activity or exercise um, or thing that you do that that always seems to work well um, and that you, you know, you really enjoy because you can go into it with a sense of I know this is going to work. I know the students are going to respond well um, to this. I think for me, it is around... <sighs> I'm probably not going to give you the answer that you want. It is around gaining. The <laughs> Any trust. answer is a good answer. <laughs> it is around gaining the trust of the students. For me, it's around how I set up. And I think you referred to it earlier, that kind of that teaching or learning environment, you know, and it's not just about kind of, you know, creating kind of a safe space. It's about the tone that you set right from the very, very start. So um, this year, I usually teach in first year and I hadn't done this past year, the previous academic year. So these second years were new to me. I was teaching them for most of their content, most of their modules in um, for this semester that's just gone. And so they didn't know me at all. I didn't know them. And for me, there was also there's a little bit of a fear factor when I teach a cohort for the very first time, because that's my opportunity to engage them. 
And, mm. you know, I used to teach a lot about kind of impression formation, you know, first impressions, you know, what your parents say is true. First impressions yeah. really matter because if you have a positive first impression, students will pretty much forgive you anything. A negative first impression is very, very difficult to overturn if you don't hit that tone. Right. So in creating that space, I do rely on some gimmicks as well. Um, so anything you're prepared to share. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always play music at the start of my sessions. Whatever I'm doing, there is always a song playing when students are kind of walking in, settling down. Um, because it kind of sets the tone, it uplifts, you know, hopefully it uplifts them. They just really like it. Sometimes I'll take requests. Um, this year, um, so the very first session that they had with me was with research methods, which, yeah, they all kind of go, ah, like screaming to the hills. And um, so um, we did have a bit of a Barbie themed research methods kind of following the summer um, Barbieheimer and we had yeah. a quiz around it and the, you know we had kind of Dua Lipa playing at the start and they were like oh my god I love this lecture I'm going to love her sessions I love research methods you know which kind of at that kind of um, <laughs> yeah kind of um, waxed and waned kind of throughout the um, semester but it kind of just set the tone really it set the tone but there are things that I do as well and it goes back to what you're saying about kind of inclusivity and you know there's students who may not want to speak up so I have um, anonymous anonymous padlets for every module that students can kind of post anonymous they post anonymously they post questions yeah. around the assessment or around the module itself and they find that a really helpful way of asking questions and gaining information, um, you know, doing VVox polls and having um, I will do kind of live Q&A's throughout the teaching session as well. So students can submit their kind of questions and, you know, we'll stop and pause and kind of, you know, look through those together Um so, yeah, a number of kind of different kind of technologies as well that really help to make sure that people feel that they have a space where they can ask questions and have a voice. That, that's yeah. Uh, I mean, that just resonates so much. But I, I do think, uh, you know, increasingly over over time, I've come to recognize the importance of, of everything that you've just said about, you know, setting the tone and, and that sort of creating a, 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 an atmosphere. Um, sadly, we have run out of time, uh, but thank you so much for all of that. I, I, I know we meandered about a bit, but I, I found it particularly interesting. I'm sure the audience will as well. For now, at least, Alison, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.